Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with J. Robert Brown, Jr., the Lawrence W. Treese Professor of Corporate Governance at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. Professor Brown served as a board member on the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board from 2018 to January 2021. Professor Brown is the co-author of a recent research paper entitled Chilling Climate Change Disclosure, The Enabling Role of Corporate Counsel in Management Misstatements of ESG Matters. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me here. Always a pleasure to talk with an organization doing such good work on behalf of the investor community. I also want to bring greetings from my co-author on the piece, Ellie Wald. He's an expert on the rules of professional responsibility, I think particularly as they apply to big law. And but for a conflict, he would have very much been happy to have joined us on this podcast today. Professor, in your paper, you predict that absent the implementation of meaningful standards of professional responsibility for lawyers, the Securities Exchange Commission's rules for climate change disclosure will not yield the disclosure results anticipated by the rules or by investors. So please explain the basis for your prediction. Yeah, thanks. That's a a good question. And it really gets to the heart, I think, of the article. So let me just start with a brief baseline. I'm sure everybody listening to the podcast knows this, but it'll help me sort of get into the, the topic as I think we need to do. So, of course, climate change disclosure, you know, we can see it around us, right, with the, the temperatures in Texas, you know, all of the weird things taking place with uh, climate and it's having business effects, right? And so more and more investors want information about the impact on business, on financial statements, on capital expenditures and things like that. Now, there's a massive voluntary disclosure regime out there that really centers on things like sustainability reports. You can find information on a company's website. And that's where investors today get a lot of the information that they use uh, with respect to climate change. Now, any uh, voluntary system will suffer from, I think, many of the same concerns and problems. And that is that the information is often incomplete. It's reliable. It lacks comparability. So the SEC knows this. The SEC in March of 2022 put out a rule proposal. The rule proposal was designed to sort of address some of these concerns, I think, with the, the voluntary disclosure system. And the proposal would provide, you know, broadly speaking, for disclosure of risks associated with climate change. There's some governance requirements about climate change that need to be in there. There would be some changes to the financial statements, particularly footnote disclosure, and greenhouse gas emissions would, would have to be disclosed in some cases. So what with the rule in place, the hope would be, of course, that disclosure would become more complete, it would become more reliable, and it would become more comparable. In other words, more useful to investors. Now, like most disclosure requirements that the SEC puts out, there is an extensive use of this concept of materiality. So materiality, what is that? It means information important to reasonable investors. So where does that appear in this in this proposal? A company will only, if it gets adopted, right? So we, we haven't seen the final rule yet. This is the proposal. A company will only be required to disclose the risks to the business of the company or the financial condition of the company of climate change if material. Scope three emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, 
have to be disclosed if material. What about companies that use third-party data to put together their greenhouse gas emissions? Well, that also has to be disclosed, as you can imagine I'm going to say, if it's material. So materiality is a critical component of this proposal. A lot of the information that will be disclosed will only be disclosed if it's determined to be material. Now, who determines that? Well, you know, as I mentioned, materiality is what's important to a reasonable investor. So it's investor focused, but of course it's management making the disclosure. So management makes the determination as to what's important to a reasonable investor. And let's face it, management doesn't always get it right. Um, Maybe they just did it wrong, did the analysis wrong. Maybe they had an overly optimistic view of their own company that caused them to come out a little bit differently. Maybe there are compensation decisions that depend on the issue that might tilt them kind of in one way or another. So they may make a wrong decision with respect to materiality. So lawyers, let's let's bring it to lawyers. Lawyers are kind of the check in the system, right? They usually review materiality determinations. Certainly they review materiality determinations for the most part that are in the SEC filings. It's hard to imagine an SEC filing going in without it being reviewed by lawyers. But here's the thing, lawyers also get it wrong. Now, they may get it wrong because they applied the wrong test, they conducted the wrong analysis, maybe they didn't have quite the right set of um, understanding. There may be a lot of reasons. There's a certain amount of this that happens. There's a certain amount of it that's a cost of doing business. They also may get it wrong because they may see their job less as really applying the test, the applicable test, what's important to a reasonable investor, and more to justify or confirm the decision that management wants. Now, why would they do this? Especially if perhaps the materiality analysis ought to come out differently. Well, for one thing, it keeps the client happy. And keeping the client happy keeps the client attached to the law firm. It's a competitive business out there. There's a a dollar and cents sort of reason why you want to make sure your client likes the advice that you give and is happy with your performance. There also is in the standards this concept that lawyers have to be a zealous advocate. And really, sometimes in the act of being zealous, you might go too far. Vice Chancellor Laster in Delaware calls this altruistic extremism. So I would also add to that. So lawyers are reviewing materiality determinations, but really they're not exactly trained in that. They don't really take courses in what does materiality mean from the perspective of, say, an institutional investor. And just because they have a 401k plan that needs to be rebalanced occasionally is not enough to really know how particularly institutional investors look at the concept of materiality. Now, you might think, look, if they give bad advice or they confirm bad advice, there are consequences to this, right? Well, That's the problem. The problem is that's generally not true. There is really no meaningful accountability in the system for bad legal advice. So why not? First, who would really be concerned about bad legal advice? Management maybe, but actually management often benefits from this legal advice. So ever wonder when the SEC charges a public company with false disclosure, bad disclosure, whatever it is, ever wonder why the SEC often does not charge individuals, executive officers within the company? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that, right? There may not be somebody they identify as sufficiently responsible. They may not be able to build a case against someone, even if they do. But there's also a defense known as the presence of counsel. 
So if executive officers are sort of participating in the disclosure process, it turns out to be wrong, but they can say, listen, my lawyers were present through all of this. It makes it very hard for the SEC to bring an action against executive officers, at least where the behavior has to be reckless or intentional because lawyers were involved. So having lawyers involved, even when the advice turns out to be wrong or the decision turns out to be wrong, can help insulate management from liability, at least from the SEC. What about state bar associations? They regulate lawyers. They're really not up to the task. How about the SEC? Can the SEC bring actions for bad advice? The answer is they could, but they don't. The SEC has, the commissioners have decided collectively that this is not an area where they want to expend resources. And so they simply don't bring actions against lawyers that provide incorrect or inaccurate advice to management. Now, how about reputation? Do lawyers have an incentive to get it right out of reputation? We at least take the position in the article that that's not sufficient to get them to necessarily overcome some of these other reasons why they may not. And frankly, lawyers, I think, that have a reputation for doing what clients want, for taking that extra step on behalf of clients, that may be better for their reputation. So who's harmed by all of this? Well, of course, investors, right? It's investors that essentially don't get the information that they need because the materiality analysis is wrong. So, so it harms markets, it harms investors, it makes investment decisions, perhaps it, it allows them to be made perhaps on less accurate information. So let's go back to climate change. Remember, climate change, the rule proposal by the SEC has a number of instances where it depends on materiality. We know from uh, almost a beta test of this, what can happen when there's an emphasis on materiality. So Mary Shapiro, when she was chair of the SEC, had the foresight back in 2010 to put out some guidance about when, under the existing disclosure regime, companies should be disclosing climate change-related developments. And mostly it was, when is that information material under our existing reporting regime? So the long release widely read, people knew about it, and what happened, at least according to some, the amount of climate change disclosure actually went down. So in other words, applying the materiality analysis didn't increase disclosure, it potentially lessened the amount of disclosure. So one specific area, scope three emissions. If scope three emissions stays in the proposed rule and becomes final and only has to be disclosed when it's material, management decides it's not material, and lawyers confirm that, rather than actually looking at it kind of from an independent analysis as to whether it's important to reasonable investors, we might find that the disclosure regime that emerges under a rule has substantially less disclosure of scope of three emissions than I think investors both want and contemplate under the rule proposal. Professor, your paper identifies two potential reforms intended to increase the accountability of lawyers that provide inaccurate advice to corporate executives regarding their public company disclosure obligations. Your first suggested reform is for the Securities and Exchange Commission to initiate action under Section 307 of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So can you provide us some background and an overview of Section 307 of SOX? And then can you explain how the SEC might use that provision to enhance public company disclosure? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Also, a, a, another thoughtful question. Um, so going back to SOX, doesn't it seem like every time we're talking about governance or um, uh, corporate disclosure, we have to revisit Sarbanes-Oxley? It was a seminal piece of legislation uh, that really, I, I think, broke a lot of uh, windows in terms of and, and barriers in terms of what could be required here. 
So SOCT, you know, it, it arose out of Enron, it arose out of WorldCom. This is, it was adopted in, in 2002. So here it is 21 years later, yet still those, I think, financial frauds kind of resonate. Now, when when those happened and, and SOCs got adopted, Congress clearly viewed management as having some responsibility for what happened. And you can see it in the law, right? It, the, the law says management, at least the CEO and CFO, now have to certify sort of the financial statements uh, that are filed with the SEC. So that increases their obligations and their responsibilities. Congress clearly saw auditors as having some responsibility and created the PCOB, right? Subjected auditors to essentially federal regulation, really, for the first time in any kind of meaningful way uh, with this newly independent regulator that was created. Largely forgotten in that whole process, Congress also had a lot to say about the role of lawyers, which goes to show you this topic that Ellie Wald and I are writing about. It's not new. It was around then. It was around before. So if you look at the legislative history to Sarbanes-Oxley, Senator Edwards, remember him, he was uh, very much, uh, I think, taking the lead with respect to some of the regulation that came out with respect to lawyers. And the first thing that he did was he really emphasized the role of lawyers uh, at least sort of tangentially to these frauds. And he sort of said, every time you see bad behavior by corporate executives and auditors, he said, the lawyers are always looking over their shoulders. In other words, the lawyers are sort of always there. He also said that he thought that lawyers were giving, that, that were hired by the corporation, were more interested in giving the advice that executive officers wanted rather than the correct advice that ought to be given sort of in the interest of shareholders in the corporation. And then the third observation that he made was in terms of who should regulate lawyers' behavior, at least lawyers' behavior with respect to public companies and disclosure by public companies, he said it shouldn't be lawyers. He said that's like the fox guarding the chicken coop. So how did Congress deal with this? They put a section into Sarbanes-Oxley that's relatively profound, right? The provision says, it, first of all, it instructs the SEC. It says, shall adopt, right? This is a mandate, a requirement. It says that the SEC shall issue rules setting forth minimum standards of professional conduct for lawyers who practice before the commission and represent public companies. So here it is. You have to adopt standards. And presumably, if you adopt standards, you should enforce them. So what happened? Neither really occurred. The SEC adopted a single standard to require lawyers to report legal violations or potential legal violations up the ladder to the board. So in other words, they see something, they find something, they report it to the company. If the company doesn't take adequate steps, they go up higher and potentially have to tell the board of directors. That's it. In terms of minimum standards, that's the only one that ever got adopted. How about enforcement? The SEC has never sanctioned a lawyer for violating the up the ladder standards. So neither comprehensive minimum standards nor enforcement. So two decades later, the problem is still there. It's time for the SEC to go back and follow through on the mandate set out in SOX and adopt these minimum standards and then presumably also enforce them. Now, we discuss in the article, I think one of the positives about the article is we don't just say the SEC should do this. We give a lot of suggested approaches that the SEC might take. and without sort of boring the entire audience as to all of the specifics, what I would say is we do recommend that the SEC adopt a standard that makes it much more clear what it means to be a lawyer who is hired by the corporation and representing the corporation 
rather than executive management. One of the very concerns I think that Senator Edwards mentioned in the adoption of Section 307. Professor, a second potential reform discussed in your paper is for the U.S. Congress to enact new legislation to create a public company oversight board for lawyers. So can you explain what such a board would look like and how it might operate in a manner that could improve public company disclosures? Yeah, this is a we, we you know we raised the topic right and and uh, and of course I think Ellie and I will probably do a second piece and we probably will flesh this topic out in a whole lot more detail. So let me give you kind of some preliminary thoughts. So again, let's go back to SOX. I think SOX is instructive. So when SOX was under consideration, there was a lot of discussion in agreement that auditors needed to be subject to increased oversight. Remember, auditors were really regulated by state CPA societies. There was some self-regulation, but essentially very little federal regulation, albeit that sometimes the SEC would bring an enforcement case or intervene. So broad, broad um, recognition that there needed to be a more thorough and and, uh, exacting sort of system of oversight and regulation. So Where would that regulation come from? Well, there were some that testified that really the SEC should be the ones to regulate auditors and that, in fact, their authority maybe could be enhanced. Congress just completely rejected that approach. And if you look at the legislative history, you can see that there are a bunch of reasons why. You know, there was concern about expenditures and expertise, but really, I think when you really look at all of the legislative history and you really dig into it, I think Congress simply didn't trust the SEC to exercise meaningful oversight. Now, the SEC had oversight of auditors really from the 1930s. Um, It's probably in the 33 Act, but certainly in the 34 Act. And I would have to say over that time period, didn't do a particularly good job overseeing the, the, the profession. Um, I'd also add that regulating a profession is hard and it can get lost in sort of lots of other responsibilities and and the SEC has lots of other responsibilities. So while the SEC has the authority in Section 307 to adopt these minimum standards and to enforce them, I'm not sure that the SEC is really that interested in assuming the responsibility. And certainly we can see from the fact that they haven't adopted anything since the up the ladder requirement. But I think more importantly, I think it's safe to say the up the ladder requirement has been entirely unenforced. So this really, to me, at least suggests um, not a great deal of uh, interest or will on the part of the SEC to sort of assume responsibility for oversight of a profession, certainly the legal profession. So let's let's sort of apply these lessons to lawyers, right? So what I think we need is we clearly need additional oversight. After all, lawyers are participating in decisions by public companies, disclosure decisions that invest in that affect investors, shareholders, and the public. So really, somewhere in there, we need some oversight that I think is designed to kind of look out for the interest of the public. I think that lawyers, as as Senator Edwards said, are really not the ones who should oversee themselves. That's the fox in the hen house kind of argument. And I think the SEC, again, from what I mentioned before, really doesn't have the will to do it. So I think what we need is we need a, a regulator, I think not unlike the PCOB, that can be responsible for overseeing at least lawyers involved in representing 
public companies with respect to their disclosure requirements. I mean, we would have to think about sort of exactly how to limit it. The PCOB only regulates auditors of public companies and broker dealers. It doesn't regulate all auditors. So like that, I think that a, a federal regulator, a PCOB for lawyers would also need to sort of discern which lawyers would be sort of subject to that oversight. Now, I will say the PCOB has had its ups and downs, but I think under the leadership of Erica Williams, the current chair, I think under the leadership of Jim Doty, who chaired the PCOB a few years back, I think one of the things we can say is that there has been improved audit oversight. I think there's been improved audit quality. So I think having a federal regulator can work, it can benefit the public, and I think something maybe like this is necessary for lawyers. Now, I just want to be clear. I don't want to say that the PCOB is perfect, right? There are things that if you were to create a new regulator, I would want to do differently. While I was a board member at the PCOB, I gave a lot of speeches about the need for greater transparency at the PCOB. Um, I think any new regulator, if we were to put a PCOB in for lawyers, I would want to see more transparency maybe than exists under the current system. So is this ever going to happen? Well, I think like Sox, I think like Dodd-Frank, it's probably going to take a set of financial failures that are blamed, at least in part, on the role of lawyers, at least where lawyers are identified as kind of looking over the shoulders of management. Then maybe there will be some will like there was with Sox and, and oversight of auditors. Having said that, Ellie Wold and I are hoping that this article and maybe the next one will advance the discussion of this issue and maybe get some legislation written that's on the shelf so that when the circumstances are ripe, Congress will have it ready and be able to act in this area. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to again thank my special guest, J. Robert Brown, Jr., Lawrence W. Treese, Professor of Corporate Governance at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, that's J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.